and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and I'm with Martin Spain and in this show we discuss cars in films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. In this episode we're going to be getting our skates on mate and checking out the Italian job old and new. But first, some follow-up from our previous episodes starting with the Gumball episode from Two episodes ago now? Three episodes ago now? Yeah, two... Let's say two. Let's say two. So I was talking to Tim Hutton of Private Motor Club magazine, amongst other things, and he was telling me about some of the -the behind-the-scenes stories of Gumball. And I've got to say, there will be a fantastic documentary in the period from one rally finishing to the next one starting... Because it just sounds like the most bonkers build-up. I mean, the whole company is geared around the rally. That's their thing. So you've got, in the space of about 10 months, once everyone's recovered from the last one, you've got to come up with a route, recce it, get permits, get accommodations, sort out logistics, get sponsors, get designs, get approval, get stuff made. And then about three months before the rally, the nights start getting longer. And about the month before the rally, it just gets crazy and even on the event itself it's a lot of quite young people who are basically working their asses off with numbers of crew cars leapfrogging each other to try and set up the next checkpoint get the next hotel ready get the next thing ready my god they did one where they were flying cars around the world how on earth they handled the logistics of that i have no idea but it just sounds amazing particularly as it's such a marketing event for a company where basically they do one thing a year which then has to sustain the company for the next 10 11 months until the next one comes around it's it's absolutely fascinating and i say it'd be worthy of a documentary or 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 something like that because it's it's just bonkers I've seen a little bit of this side of the world. I think I have friends who do or have done motor shows in the past who live a similar kind of nomadic lifestyle of like intense stress for a period of time. And then there'll be six months of planning the next one and the next one comes around and there's the build and the intense stress of running it and then the calm down afterwards and then you go away and you go to another continent and build the next one up. (laughs) And I did that for a little bit about 20 years ago and it was really hard work and uh, I didn't want to do it again. <laughs> so my hat's off to Tim when he worked for them. Coping with that kind of thing is not easy. Mm. And I can imagine it being so many sleepless nights and so much stress and hassle. Oh, yeah. The other thing that we did talk about was we looked at the 2003 event, I think it was, that they did the film of. Yeah, 2003. I think yep. Tim said he worked there from, from the 2006 rally. Uh, it's a bit before that and, and for a few years after. I do think that the event has shifted a bit. It's no longer a car enthusiast event that's kind of a bit left field. It's become a much bigger event with much bigger expectations, like proper, quote, celebrities, not just ex-skateboarders. And, you know, I think that the, the challenge has become so big and the returns have to be so big that I, it will be really interesting to see just how the event has shifted from the inside from, what was it, 2000 or 1999 even possibly, when they did the first rally. Because, my God, they've been doing that for, I think it would possibly would have been 20 years this year. 
Well, that's the thing. And I remember back to the really early ones. Damon Hill did one. Mm. Um, you know, a few more unusual names, sort of genuine petrolhead names. And I guess now it is your classic celebs and then latterly modern day YouTubers, I guess. Yes. Yeah. I know Shmi's done some. Mr. JWW did one, was it last year, year before? Doing like the whole rally in a, a road going Aston Martin Vulcan, which given that it's basically, you know, a GT3 race gearbox and brakes and you know, rose jointed suspension and wearing headsets the whole time because you can't hear yourself think. That cannot have been comfortable. I mean, cool, Very certainly, cool. but that cannot have been comfortable. No, I, fair play to him. Say what you like, but my God, fair play. Um, speaking of Private Motor Club, so Tim, after he left Gumball, has actually started a magazine now called Private Motor Club. And if you like your magazines, if you like Road Rat, for example, I know quite a few of our listeners do, Private Motor Club is very much in a sort of similar vein. It's a bit more lifestyle, really well written. I think they've got Alex Goyer writing for them, Andrew Frankel, people who don't start with an A. Um, the photography is great. The layout is is beautiful. And they've actually got an Indiegogo fundraiser at the moment launched. So if you want to go and support them, if you want to check out a magazine, if you've never seen it before, if you've never subscribed before, go and check it out. Check them a few quid, particularly at the moment, a really small, independent, high-quality publication like this deserves support so please we'll put a link in the show notes go and have a look and hopefully tim if you ever listen to this how about a behind the scenes feature of gumball go talk to max go and find out a bit more about the then the now that would be fascinating oh i did actually donate to that indiegogo um i didn't think I needed another glossy quarterly car magazine, but <laughs> I, I think you tweeted about it and I thought, you know, yeah, why not? I'm stuck inside like lots of yeah. us are. And uh, uh, between bouts of intense YouTube watching, <laughs> then I need something to take my mind off all the YouTube videos I'm watching with the YouTubes and the YouTube and you, you, YouTube, 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 YouTube. Funny you should mention YouTube. <laughs> In the most recent episode as... I say that, and this is a really bad thing to say because I know they're actually recording at the same time we're recording. So in the one before the one that would have been published before we get this one out, probably, Alan Bradley, one of the hosts of Motoring Podcast, did a blog post, which really we probably should have done some time ago on that website that we really should do more with, listing the car YouTube channels that he follows. So... If you want to have some inspiration, if you're going through a bit of a YouTube binge at the moment, we'll put a link in the show notes to Alan's blog post. There's a really interesting selection of stuff. There's a few of the more uh, familiar ones. There's a few of the more sort of mainstream ones. There's some pretty out there stuff. And I think there may be a version two coming at some point soon. But this is where we need you, our great listeners. In our last episode... We talked about all the streaming services, but we didn't really touch on YouTube. And we mentioned one YouTube film or channel pretty much in every episode or a few, because I can very rarely ever narrow it down to one. So if you have a channel that you think people should be watching, that you think is great for a car audience, and you kind of don't really get why more people don't watch it, drop us an email, drop us a tweet. We're comments at automoviepodcast.com or find us on Twitter at automoviepod. Let us know. We will share these out on Twitter. We will give you a shout out in the next episode. 
and we would just want to build a great list of the slightly more niche content because that's kind of where we live in this automotive landscape let us know share what you love we will then share it with the world we'll give you a shout out on the next episode marty what would your contribution to that list be I think probably off the top of my head, I'd say Ratarossa's channel. Mm. Yeah, um, good shout. He is a guy that does a lot of work on Ferraris, mostly old Ferraris. He has a ratty old Testarossa, uh, which has no paint on it. It's a kind of dull silver colour. Did, did he chop the roof off <laughs> that in the channel name? I have uh, possibly, yes, it is genuinely ratty. Uh, but he also has a 360 Challenge Stradale, which he built himself mm. out of an original 360 Moderna. He's just done a video about the process of doing it where he bought a mint uh, 360 Moderna for about 40 grand about 10 years ago and then put probably another 20, 25 <sighs> into doing a nut and bolt conversion to the Challenge Stradale. It's quite an interesting video because it goes into the differences between the two cars mm. and they are significant. You know, there's a hundred kilo of weight lost and he kind of talks through how, how that weight is lost and how much it might cost you now to do the conversion. And the answer is more than it would cost you to buy an actual 360 Challenge Stradale. Um, his channel does not get the huge views of someone like a Sam Crack or Tavarish mm. or anyone like that. It's more around the sort of twenty to 25,000 views per video it could be because it's niche content it's just about ferraris by and large but it's interesting stuff i quite like watching it because it's interesting seeing someone work on ferraris yes in the uk modding and fixing your own stuff is far more accepted in the us in the uk we're like low mileage everything must be done with the dealer service history blah de, blah de, blah and it's far more interesting to me to see somebody who's obviously working on these cars himself who knows an awful lot about them and it kind of makes you think yeah when such point as they ever come down from the lofty heights they've reached mm. it might be interesting to 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 have one and see if you could run it for a year without taking it near a ferrari <laughs> dealership so yeah ratarossa would be my one there's a few others but that one's the one that sprang to mind that's a good show i would say apex one which is a channel done by the guys who do the apex film so story of the hypercar and secret race across america who were also the team behind the Drive YouTube channel when that launched, I was going to say way back when, it was what, five, six years ago or something? That's a hundred years ago in internet years. <laughs> it feels like a very, very long time ago. It really does. It really does. But Apex One, so the focus of it isn't your sort of everyday car stuff. It's more on the tech side. So it's more things that Koenigsegg are doing to kind of push the technology envelope. Are they, they the channel that have done the Koenigsegg's magic air-powered... Uh, valve train. Valve thingy, yeah. I think so, yes. I'm sure I've seen these and gone, I really should watch those. And but they <laughs> did, I think they have a really good relationship with Christian von Koenigsegg because they've done loads of features with yes. him, both when they were Drive and presumably now as Apex One. Mm. I should revisit these because Lord knows I haven't spent enough time in front of YouTube right now. <laughs> um, they also did a good piece around Singer, Singer, Singer. Zinger, like singer. the Tower Burger. <laughs> singer, yes, Zinger. Oh, God, so miss KFC. Um, it's, they talk about the manufacturing process and they do walk-arounds on the cars. Also, they have a website as well. They've got people like Matt Hardegree writing for them, doing actual words and editorial stuff. 
well worth a look. It's not usual stuff. It's much more on the car tech side. So if you like your tech, that's the thing to go for. Cool. I like that. Also, we have to mention at this point as well, the one YouTube thing that you and I have been tweeting each other, uh, texting each other about rather, which very rarely happens these days, but Car Trek. Yeah, we mentioned this, didn't we? In the previous episode, Car Trek is on, I guess, episode five or six of eight. Something like that, yeah. And I have been loving everyone. Some are maybe a little better than others. Some maybe run a little long and could use a bit more editing. I get the impression that they are almost editing these on the fly. They collected so much footage (laughs) that while you're all watching episode four, they're actually trying to desperately busy edit down and put the voiceovers for for episode five but i've been loving these this has been exactly what i need during this period of lockdown where you can't really do much that you would consider normal this is (laughs) three guys doing a top gear special it's um freddie tavares hernandez tyler hoover and ed bolian all driving cars in a top gear challenge to get to a place i've forgotten where it is it's not the quail it's uh, the emilia island yeah Concorde Concorde de de Elegance. that's it yeah so they're driving from somewhere to somewhere in three cars that are going to have things go wrong and spoiler alert things go wrong <laughs> but it's just so joyous seeing that format done really really well with three mm. guys who obviously get along really well they've got very different tastes in cars and very different approaches to what they like from cars and how they like to drive cars and that really really works well and it's a great take on the the Three Amigos classic Top Gear format. So if you mm. haven't been watching it, then please go and see it because it's great. It's on uh, Freddy, Freddy's channel, um, youtube.com slash Tavarish, and uh, they're coming out every other day at the moment. Something I think, like, like I that, said, yeah. they're, they're, they're coming out pretty quick. But you can go back and start from the beginning, watch them all, and just enjoy seeing three guys driving cars and kind of remember what it was like when you were allowed to do that for fun <laughs> back in the dark ages back in back in the day plus as well if you go on to VinWiki and onto Hoovy's Garage they're also doing their own kind of behind the scenes and build up films about why they chose those cars and why Ed bought a spare Lamborghini. I, I was about to mention that one. I really enjoyed hearing him talk about having to buy a spare Lamborghini <laughs> in case his other spare Lamborghini didn't work. Ed likes Lamborghinis in case you didn't know. Um, but the stories he tells, because he's such a master storyteller, he has that deep storyteller's voice and oh. the salesman patter that means he just... You can kind of tell he's constructing these sentences on the fly. None of this is rehearsed. He's just got that ability to Mm. generate a great sentence and spin a great yarn from reasonably humble beginnings. And that story alone, but he's also really come into his own on the Car Trek show where he's talking about his car because you can hear him basically selling its merits to the audience (laughs) while he's driving it. And you can tell how he sold Lamborghinis to rich idiots in Atlanta (laughs) (laughs) because he just has a way of of talking that makes you go, oh, yeah, absolutely. If I saw a Lamborghini that had been found in a flood, I would totally (laughs) buy it and restore it and drive it. Spoiler but, alert: His Lamborghini was in a flood. I, I don't think that's in a, that's a spoiler. I think that's in the first five minutes. But I, I, what I love as well, and this is probably one of the, the things that made the original Top Gear so identifiable, was that each one of them has their own set of skills and their own set of kind of good points and bad points. And Freddie rebuilds supercars for his channel, so he's not adverse to a spanner. 
Ed doesn't. And he's not afraid to say so. And it's it's just that proper thing where it's like, why is this broken? Well, you need to do this and do this and take this off, take this off, take this off, take this off, lift those out, take the cables out, and then you'll be able to fix it. It's like, that sounds like a lot of work. No, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> it's, it's the kind of thing that Clarkson would go, yes, let's do that. <laughs> With <There>. a hammer. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just... For me, at the very least, it's joyous watching. Mm. I have loved every second of it. I'm going to be very sad when this series finishes, and I hope it's been successful enough that they choose to do it again. Definitely. So if you haven't seen this, on Tavares' channel, or I think you can get Twitter updates at Cartrek Official on Twitter, and ah. possibly the Instagrams and other stuff. But yeah, catch it on Tavares' channel or follow any of the three of them uh, to see updates. Also, since our last episode, Hooniverse have put up a very, very short list of asking, what is the best opening movie scene involving a car ever? To which the first line of the article is, the correct answer is Baby Driver. Now, this list is not a very long list. If you want to go and have a look and see the clips, we'll put a link in the show notes. But the second one on there is the opening scene of Gone in 60 Seconds. I, what? We've talked about the opening scene of Gone in 60 Seconds with, with Kip Rains and his tool, a house brick, <laughs> a 996 Carrera that isn't actually even a 996. <laughs> it's his, actually his a much rarer escape, car. <laughs> in his method of escape involves driving the car he's stealing, presumably for somebody else, through a wall. No, not a wall, a window. A window. And then, oh, it's... I, no, that is not a great opening sequence involving a car. Even if you take away Kip Rains being an absolute bellend, <laughs> it's just badly shot. It's not classic. There's no great car action. There's no great camera angles. It's that. No. It, it's that cut, 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 cut. Slightly wobbly, shaky cam mm. that you used to get before Russian arms became a thing that everyone used, and before bolt-ons became motion stabilized and all that kind of thing. Um, I had to think about this. The opening to the original Fast and Furious sprang to mind. Am I right in saying that Ooh. is the the Honda Civics and the truck? I think it is, yeah, because when you first see Brian and the red Ford Lightning, that's the following day, isn't it? Well, don't you see Brian first in his green... Um, eclipse. Eclipse, trying to do fast things around a car park. Oh, and blowing his floor, floor pan off for some reason. Possibly, or is that not? I can't remember. Isn't that the no. bit where you get the wonderful danger to manifold? <laughs> Which is a proper a meme unto itself these days. No, no, I, I think it's the truck. I think you're right. Actually, oh, that's a really good shout. I, I remember watching that in cinema and thinking, this is a great bit. Again, practical, mm. practical action. It's shot low and there are long takes so you can see what's going on i really that's a pretty good opening it's not as good as baby driver i don't think because it's not quite as quirky and cool and you know what the it's first close time, though it's very close the first time i saw the fast and the furious and you kind of go wow this is amazing and then the civic goes under the trailer yeah and you just kind of go <gasps> Yeah, that was its moment. I can't remember if it was in the actual movie trailer, not the trailer of the truck. I have a feeling it was, but I think that would be yeah. the shot to to lure you in. It's a great opening because you've no idea what's going on. All you know mm. is that cool things are being done in cars on screen and you haven't seen that for a long time and woo, shiny. <laughs> uh, 
That would be a good shout. That would. Can I think of any others? There's an obvious one we're not talking about because we're going to talk about it later on yes. in the show. Yes. Uh, I can't what about think Le Mans? Of... I thought you might bring this up. And yes, it's cool. Is it cool because of the car or is it cool because it's got Steve McQueen in it? <sighs> or is it that thing that it becomes iconic? You know what? It almost reminds me of Ronin. And I'll, I will explain this metaphor. Ronin itself is a fairly mediocre film, but everyone remembers it fondly because of the car stuff. And I think with Le Mans, there is an element of you remember the stuff around it fondly, whether it was good or bad, because you like the good bit. And, and then the rest of it around it is actually not that good, much it's like... It's not bad. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Actually, to be fair, I need to go back and revisit that. And I have a fair bit of time indoors on my hands right now, <laughs> as I'm sure many of you do, so maybe we should all go back and rewatch Le Mans. I would say, for me, one of the best car movie opening scenes featuring a car ever, to mangle the article title completely, is actually the start of Cannonball Run 2. Now, Cannonball Run 1, because I'm such a connoisseur of the form of awful 80s car films, was the two women in the black Lamborghini Countach outrunning the police. Which is a great opening. Which is great. You did a a review of it a few episodes back and Mm. marked that out as the high point in the movie. It is. It's fantastic. What they do with Cannonball Run 2, unlike the rest of the film, is they take it up a notch without going too far. So you've now got a white Lamborghini Countach driven by two women outrunning the police in the deserts of America, horrendously sped up. I mean, that knocks all the cool points off it straight away. But the twist in the tale, which when I saw this when I was eight, just blew my mind completely, was there is one point where they come off the road, they pull into a, I was going to say field, it's not a field, it's just like a bit of desert with two men with hoses. And they wash the car and they wash off all the white paint and it's red underneath and off they go and they confuse the police by... And you hear them on the radio kind of going, oh, I can't see a white Lamborghini anywhere. Hey, you won't believe this. There's a red one right behind me. Oh, hang on, it's overtaking me. And being driven exactly the same way as the being white Being driven one, exactly the same. With the same tags on it. Oh, hold and, on a minute. And, and I quote, with a couple of great-looking chicks in it, which is... Uh, the early 80s, what a the time. The early 80s. But it still has the great song... And it still has, I'm pretty sure this is dubbed, but it's a great sound of a Lamborghini Countach V12 being double declutched and held wide open. And it's, it's probably like, boom, boom, it's, it's awful, but I love it. So, so I you will... can watch the start. Our recommendation is watch the first five minutes and then turn it off and go and watch <sighs> something else like Le Mans. Watch, yeah, Cannonball Run 2's better. I think, but yeah, just 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 watch that bit, and we're pretty much done. And then put the gumball rally on again because you know we told you how good that was last couple of episodes ago. Definitely. Or turn on your Apple TV or your Amazon TV Fire Stick and watch Motor Trend because we there seem to be an announcement every few days that they've got another great series of people doing things with amazing cars and amazing places that you wish you would do. Yes. 
I have noticed that Jethro Bovingdon is still a jammy git with his <laughs> series Petrol Head Planet, which is subtitled Jethro Bovingdon is a jammy git. Uh, they are three episodes in now, so they've done one episode in the North Islands, which is really painful for me to watch because I was due to go there in a couple of weeks' time. And of course, with the lockdown, that is not possible. Uh, that was with a 997 GT3 RS 4.0 and a Carrera GT. The second episode is an E30 M3 Roberto Ravaglia edition and an E46 M3 CSL. <sighs> now, that's a pretty good episode. Not only does he get to drive the E30 and the E46 M3 CSL, he also chats to Ari Vatanen. <laughs> because of course he does. Who is a complete dude and, and just fantastic. Um, the only thing that lets it down, of course, is that the M3 CSL has got that manky SMG gearbox instead of the really good one, of which I think there must only be one in the world with that manual conversion um, that you were talking about last episode. Possibly. Uh, I've watched the Catchball film on it. It looks great. And oh. I would love for them to be really cheap, but they're not. <laughs> As is the way with anything vaguely cool in four wheels at the moment. Yes. So the third episode of Petrol Head Planet uh, is... I have watched this, I think. Maybe I went, no, you're too jammy, Mr. Bobbington. I'm not going to watch this one. I'm trying. Yes. I'm struggling to remember which cars it, it is. But either way, that is a really good series. It's shot beautifully and it gives you a great taste of a driver's opinion of the cars involved. So, you know, Jethro's admitted he didn't really get on with the E30 M3, never had a really great drive in it. This is him searching for the thing that everyone says makes it magic. Similarly, he's talking about how much he loves the CSL, but doesn't shy away from talking about how awful the SMG gearbox is compared to the rest of the car. Really, really good watching and in this kind of time, it's escapism. You know, mm. back when it feels like a very long time ago that you could just go out for a drive wherever you wanted for however long you wanted. Um, so I've been really enjoying the escapism of watching that and there's mm. some great roads. It's not only the cars, I should stress, it's all the locations that he's driving these cars are very specifically chosen for being great driving roads. They're not just pitching up somewhere and going, oh, these look all right. It's, it's very <laughs> clearly researched. The other thing on Motor Trend is Chris Hoy's dream drives or dream cars? Dream jobs. Chris Hoy's dream jobs. Because that's what this channel needs, is more people living out your automotive fancy on your behalf. Yes, I still haven't seen this. Uh, I will watch it because I could do with a break from watching car stuff on YouTube, and so I will choose to watch <laughs> car stuff on Motor Trend instead. <laughs> BBC Four, for some reason, the other night, did just a gaggle of car films. And it was a thing about James Hunt and Nicky Lauda and their relationship. There was a feature-long documentary on the behind-the-scenes of Le Mans, uh, the, the Steve McQueen film, and Chris Hoy's Le Mans at 200 miles an hour, whatever it's called, where he actually goes from radicals to um, driving an LMP2 car. Yeah, I, I remember watching this when it was first screened. I really enjoyed it because you got to see what it's like at a sort of mm. middling LMP2 team. Mm. Who's he driving for? It was for Portugal... That was Algarve Portugal Racing. Algarve Racing, yeah. But I really enjoyed watching the fortunes of a mid-pack LMP2 mm. team because it's so often that these documentaries will follow either someone who's right at the back 
or someone who's right at the front. And it's rare to see that kind of middle ground where you can see they're doing okay, but it's a small team, very much like a family. You get to see what happens, mm. who's in charge. And th- that was a really entertaining documentary. So if you haven't seen that, it's a really good insight into what it's like to race an LMP car and what it's like to see the inside of a, like a, what I think of as a real racing team. Yes, yeah. And if you're in the UK, I think all three are still an iPlayer. I know the Steve McQueen one is because it's kind of sat in open in a browser tab uh, and I have yet to watch it. <laughs> so it's, maybe it's going to disappear soon. But if you are in the UK and you have iPlayer, then do check them out. One thing we would like to do before we go any further is just quickly do a bit of plugging and promo. It sounds a bit dirty, but it really helps to spread the word of the podcast. It helps get other people listening to it. So if you have a minute and you may have one or two spare indoors when you're stuck in the lockdown, it would be lovely if you could give us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast repository of choice. A nice review would be good, but, you know, if you want to leave us a (laughs) shitty review, then that's your prerogative. Please, if you listen and you enjoy this, don't just text me on WhatsApp and say, hey, I really enjoyed the last episode, dude. Tweet it. (laughs) Put it out there on Facebook. Tell your friends... Please spread the word of the podcast. It really helps get us more listeners and spread the word and make what we do reach a wider audience. So plug over, slight (laughs) guilt tripping over. We will try not to keep these too long. But uh, yes, please tell your friends, tell everyone to come and support this little podcast. And on that note, let's move on to the theme for this week's show, which is the Italian job. And we're actually reviewing two Italian jobs. Marty's going to start with the wrong Italian job. No, 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 no. You're going to start. We're going to do this chronologically. We're going to. Oh, okay. Because I want to rebut your. I love the 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 old one. It's Ace. Oh, I, I I I'm already waiting for you to talk about the new one. Many reasons. However, let's start with the good one first. So, sorry. The, let's start with the old one first. <laughs> Factually, I can't correct you on that one. Yes, you can, exactly. And we are a factual podcast. We're being factual. (laughs) You are technically correct, which is the best sort of correct. It's the actual correct. I am correct. You can start with the old one. (laughs) Uh, Feel the needle. So, for those of you who haven't seen the Italian job, and until alarmingly recently, I was actually one of that number, the film follows Charlie Croker leaving prison has an idea for a job, and that is to go and steal a shipment of gold, landing at Turin Airport, getting it out, and fame and wealth and riches beyond his wildest dreams will follow. In order to do this, he has to break back into the prison he's just left, get a backer for his his plan, uh, who is the rather brilliant... Um, Mr. Bridger, played by Noel Coward for reasons. Um, And then they put a team together. They have to get the cars together. They have to have a plan. They have to get the people together. They then have to go and do the heist and they have to get the gold out of Turin. Now, it's a very, very simple plot. Very, very well done. But... And that's it. That's it. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> it's a very simple plot. Very well done. So this is, is the it? thing. It is. Is it really well done? It it really is. So here's the thing. I actually watched it again last week in preparation for this. 
And then over the weekend, I watched Ocean's Eleven, the the new one, not the um, not the original. Yeah, and there was a quite a distinct difference between the two. Now, have you ever watched the original Ocean's Eleven, the no. Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin one? No. If you ever get the chance, don't. It's really slow. It's really indulgent, and it is just really baggy. It's a really awful sort of... What's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, when it's an ensemble piece. So you get the gang together. And what they do with Ocean's Eleven, the new one, the Steven Soderbergh one, is you have a process where you get the gang together and you've got this person and they're in this situation. That's their backstory. And that's why he's going to do this. And that's why he's going to come in and do that. So what you have is 11 characters and they're all kind of driving the story forward in their own little way. What's really different about the Italian job is that it is absolutely Charlie's film. He is the driving force behind it. He's the one who organised it. He's the one, excuse me, he's the one that gets all the people together. He's the one with the idea. He's the one that keeps everybody on track. He's the one that basically gets everybody to the point where they can execute it. And what's interesting, the more you watch it, the more you realise, is how minimalist the film is. And what I mean by that is, we are so used now to these long, rambling conversations, whether it's, you know, what do you call a cheeseburger in Paris, or it's, you know, a scene of uh, Rusty and Ocean's Eleven teaching Topher Grace how to play poker. All red. Um <laughs> But the, it's all about sort of the character and the backstory. And it's all about, wait a minute, well, this person's come in. Well, what's their deal? You know, how did they get here? There is none of that in the Italian job. There aren't long conversations. There aren't long bits of exposition. It's there all, isn't any exposition. There isn't any exposition. You're actually, you're trying to sell what I find as a massive flaw as a feature. But so here's the thing, though. You don't know the story of a lot of these people because you don't need to know what the story is. You know, when you get a hired goon on a job, you don't know what their what their background is. All they do is they come in, they do the thing, they go, that's it. Even the dialogue, everybody knows. You say the Italian job, everyone goes, you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off, which is about the 50% of the dialogue in the entire scene. There's not a lot of long-winded dialogue. It's all quite snappy. It's all quite modern. And the film, from the moment it starts, really just whips along. It feels quite modern, to the point that the opening scene, so the opening scene, to go back to our, our previous discussion, is one of the greats. It is. It starts on an absolute highlight. Matt Monroe, Lotus, uh, not Lotus, Lamborghini Miura, driving through the Alps. Days like this, lovely. The graphics that are overlaid with the, the the credits, they look a bit old hat now. But if you watch the driving and you watch where the cameras are placed, I think if you were to take a GoPro onto a car, onto those roads, you'd actually end up with a pretty similar looking film. That bit is exceptional. I'll give you that. That it bit is, exceptional. is brilliant. And then... And lots of... Lots of movies have tried to do it mm. again. You know, the the kind of windy alpine road in a fancy sports car. Bond's done it. And none mm. of them have done it quite as well. Whether or not they've had the weather, because there's loads of snow on the slopes and you've got the mountains always seem to be perfectly 
framed in the backdrop and it's a mirror and mm. but with the Italian job I think choosing Matt Monroe for that bit is it kind of gives the scene a bit of a calmness that kind of da 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 and it's just the cars just flowing from corner to corner and whereas with Bond if he was driving that he'd kind of be driving through this alpine pass in the back of it's like ding dum bum ding 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 and there's that kind of like oh what's about to happen with this nothing is going to happen it's just a man out for a nice drive and then something happens but it like i say it feels modern that low just behind the front wheels placement the way that the camera's put in in the car feels kind of modern and then once you get into the film so when you've got charlie who's getting going through things you know just have to come out of prison he has these reveals. He has these moments where he becomes that character. He, you know, he has his hero close up, and immediately as well, it's starting to to go. It, it's again, it's almost like that Ocean's Eleven thing. You know, when they come out of prison and um, Rusty's waiting for Danny Ocean, and there's immediately a bit of banter, and off they go. The sixties style is absolutely throughout. You know, sixties swinging in London has never been more swinging. Um, to quote Alex Goy. In a very good Drive Tribe article, uh, the man must have the stamina of a horse. And it's entirely true. Using Noel Coward for Mr. Bridger, I think, was actually a kind of stroke of genius in a way. Because who's the guy from Lockstock and Snatch? You know, uh, it's Alan Ford. Yes. You know this guy? No, that's that's a bit that's a bit too much. That's Caine. Michael Caine. <laughs> no, do you mean Alan Michael Ford Caine. was the guy? He was the barman in was, Lockstock, and he was Bricktop in Snatch. Yeah, so the character was supposed to be that sort of guy originally. However, the director that they've got, who has a very long and, and somewhat tortuous story, which was is on the um, documentary, it's on the disc. It's also talked about in a great book called Self-Preservation Society, which we've talked about on a previous podcast some time ago, but that's like the authoritative tone when it comes to the Italian job. His godfather, through a very, very long tortuous series of events, was Noel Coward. So Noel Coward came in to, to play Mr. Bridger, and he brings with him an authority that's quite unusual, but he plays it so brilliantly. He's not a big hard man. He's not threatening violence on everybody. But he just has this innate ability to convey this character who knows the system. He's under control of everything. He controls the prison. He can walk into the um, governor's office whenever he wants. He knows all the tricks. And he could even tell a prison guard to leave the room if he wants to 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 have a chat with somebody so i think he's brilliant the drama itself ratchets up throughout the film so when they're practicing with the minis they start writing off the cars they don't have that many left they have to get some more they've got three escape cars which end up getting trashed the mafia are kind of growing in presence throughout the film and when you get to the point where they have to do the heist, they've basically got none of their plan Bs are left. They've got more than just the police to deal with. They've got the mafia trying to get them. They've got to still go through with their plan because they can't do anything else. And it, it's properly 
properly tense. And then you get to the driving bit. So the famous bit with the minis when they're driving through Turin. Because there is nothing you can read. There is nothing that you can you can really do to understand just how bonkers those stunt drivers were. It was a proper seat of the pants. Oh, go and drive down this. See what happens. Yeah, all right. Rah, bah, 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 bah. The shots are long. You see what they're doing. You know, they don't have the space or the room or uh, the possibility to kind of do too much else. And there's one scene, there's a famous scene when they're going through the sewer tunnels and the car at the front is kind of going side to side up and down the side of this tunnel. And at one point he goes a bit too far and just catches it before it rolls and it kind of lands at a slightly odd angle. That is a fantastic moment. Isn't that the moment that triggered, um, was it Top Gear or was it the Grand Tour, to try and actually roll a mini in in a tunnel? I don't know, but the stunt driver who was driving that car wanted to do a barrel roll. Yeah. He did it once in rehearsals. And every other time he tried, the car ended up on its roof. I'm not surprised. I'm still not quite sure how it's possible, but it is. Every time I watch it, I think, go on, go on, do it. (laughs) Um, Also, actually, Fiat were trying to get the production to use Fiat 500s for it. (laughs) Yes, in a massively missing the point move. uh, Please, we'll give you the 500s for free if you'll just use those instead of minis. Apparently they were they were offering them like five hundreds and they were giving them you know lots and lots and lots and lots of money. Um, I think they might have still gone through with some of that anyway to get the kind of the Fiat factory that's in, also in Turin in the film. Um, the um, I'm sure I saw somewhere I can't find this as a reference. I might be wrong, but they had some like Ferrari set cars. So they're basically driving around these minis and then like to get back to the hotel they'd all jump in Ferraris and drive off to the. Uh, off to the hotel. Michael Caine, I mean, you know, if you want a man who's sort of dapper and his suits actually get their own credit I at the start that. of the film. Oh, when I rewatched it, I noticed that he had a, a, <laughs> the man who provided his suits got a credit. That's pretty cool. Um, also, the there's a lot of low camera shots as well. So even when people are talking, when they're walking into rooms or whatever, there's a lot of low camera shots that sort of emphasise sort of the scale and the grandeur of all these people. Um, I'd also forgotten the E-types. I always remember the Aston Martin that um, Charlie picks up and has that lovely moment. It's the it's the Roger from Gone in 60 Seconds moment. That is like, proper Roger from Gone in 60 Seconds, he's the, the guy he's playing. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, it's like, yeah, so I've got, got, got five pounds for every tiger that I shot. Oh, you must have shot lots of tigers. Yes, I used a, used a machine gun. Um, it does drag a little bit in the middle. The I mean, the dialogue, my God, you know, you can quote so much of it and you watch it and you just got to go wow that's amazing that's great i think there is a point where it does lull and i think the killer bit for me really was benny hill because (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is where it's you this is where we struggle here because as far as i'm concerned the film starts brilliantly and then it struggles continuously until they get gold bullion into the back of those yeah. minis. And in the middle, actually, you have Benny Hill playing a sex pest. Oh, uh, you know what? Actually, speaking of, speaking of that, I, I, I did some actual research. Really? Um, I <laughs> oh, did. no. They say at one point there's $4 million worth of gold, which they're trying to steal. And you think, 
you know, what would that be in terms of inflation in terms of today's pounds? And it's like, I don't know, quite a lot of money. If they'd kept the gold based on 1969 prices and today's price, it would be worth about $150 million. So fun fact for today. Anyway, Alex Goy wrote this great article for Drive Tribe about the problems of the Italian job in today's world. Some of it I don't necessarily agree with. I think, you know, Camp Freddy and Shooting Tigers, eh, yeah, that just it's just kind of part of the world. Benny, my problem with Benny Hill's character is that, one, it's creepy as fuck. Yep. <laughs> yep, cannot go and you can't say it any stronger than that. Because the, there's this kind of background insinuation that he's done something atrocious but also, my bigger problem is that he's not funny. And it's, it, I mean, it'd be difficult, but, you know, he's not likeable. He has no appeal. There's no nothing that redeems him in the eyes of the audience. And you just kind of cringe through that whole section. And I get the idea that you get the geek, and geeks are a bit socially awkward because, you know, God knows that was true 20 years ago, let alone 50 years ago. But it's just, uh, no, no, it's it's bad and it's not funny and it's not charismatic and it doesn't really add anything to the plot that couldn't have been done in a much more straightforward way. I, I would love to read the Self-Preservation Society just to kind of see why was it Benny Hill? Like, was he there as a box office draw, which I, I seem to have remember hearing somewhere, or was it? A, a casting choice and he then kind of took the character in his own way it's it's weird um and it is problematic but the good thing is that once he kind of comes in at about two-thirds of the way into the uh, sorry at about a third of the way into the film and he's out of it by about two-thirds of the way in so all the bit with the minis and stuff you don't have to worry about him because he's well out of the picture fortunately so yeah it so it it stands the test of time for the most part the movie stunts are iconic for very good reason they are often cited for a very good reason i think as a piece of filmmaking as a piece of minimalist filmmaking as a piece making it about one man and how much you can discard from the rest of the film i think it it really works well um and i came away thinking one i really enjoyed it and two, there's not a whole lot that I would change. And I think even if you remade it now, following those same principles of minimalism, following those same principles of, you know, this is one man's job and he's kind of got some some backup on the way, there's not a lot that you could really do to make a lot better. And one of the things that I do love is that when they're trying to get the uh, the Land Rover Defenders, because another great another great British car... It's not a Defender. Is it not a Defender? Well, well no, because the Defender... <clears throat> if you'll excuse my Land Rover <laughs> I think you'll here, find... I think you'll find that that is actually a Series 2 Land Rover. <clears throat> the Defender came into being quite a bit later when they decided they couldn't just call them Series 2s and Series 3s and 90s and 110s. So I can't actually honestly remember where, what series of Land Rover it is, but it is not a Defender. Fair enough. While they're driving that very British Land Rover through the Turin traffic jams, they actually caused those traffic jams. They are real traffic jams. <laughs> they, closed, cool. they closed some roads to do some filming. The ensuing traffic jams, they then filmed more stuff in... <laughs> Which I just think is 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 just fantastic, and you know, you watch it now, knowing that you can look at all these slightly pissed off people wondering why somebody's driving this Series Two Land Rover 
daubed in football slogans and scarves through the middle of Turin. It is, in fact, I think, a Series 2 looking at it here. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely defer to your knowledge of, of all things Land Rover, but yes. I've just done some live Googling. I think it's a Series 2. Somebody jump on and tell me I'm wrong, but it's a, yeah, Series 2 long wheelbase. So, yes, it's quotable. It is the 60s. It has great suits in it. It has great, snappy, minimalist dialogue. If you haven't watched it recently, I would highly recommend it. If you've never watched it, definitely go and watch it. Now tell me why I'm wrong. It's Brexit the movie. (gasps) Oh. This is Brexit the movie. Oh. 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 Charlie goes in to see aging crime lord Mr Bridger who I never buy as being a crime lord I think maybe that's part of my problem with the whole middle chunk of the movies he just doesn't seem capable or scary he just seems slightly camp and ineffectual but Charlie goes in and he says something along the lines of it's an He's, this job he's going to do is an attack on Europe and it's an attack on Italy and the Fiat car company and the common mm. market. And the, he's yeah, basically yeah. a Tory saying, let's take back our NHS um, and get away from those dirty EU commies. Oh, that's that's not a bad take. If I could back that up a little bit by the then, uh, not because everyone quotes the um, the quotable stuff, and mm. everyone thinks about the brilliant car chases, and they are brilliant. I will not ever say anything bad about the car chases with the minis because they've never been bettered. Nothing mm. I think has ever committed anything so entertaining and so real to celluloid, and. Instantly iconic, and like I say, just never been bettered. But there's a scene, or there's a there's a line that Charlie he makes this threat to the Italian mafia guy who's trying to stop them, and he says something along the lines of, "There's a million Italians in Britain, and they'll be made to suffer. You know, mm. every every cafe, every nightclub in London will be smashed. Mister Bridger will drive them into the sea." <laughs> I know it's just aimed at the Italians, but just watching it, and I know I'm watching this through through Brexit-tinted spectacles, but it it's modern eyes and modern ears listening to something profoundly hostile and hateful, and I found it very difficult to then get that thought out of my head. Mm. Um, what you find minimalist, I find too minimalist. The thing I love about Ocean's Eleven is it gives you just enough backstory. The characters are sketched in enough so that you know who they are and what they're going to do and what their level of expertise is, but they don't tell you everything. We have no idea what Rusty did beyond the fact that he did some jobs with Danny before Danny Mm. went to prison. We only get a very vague sense of what it is that Linus does before Danny meets up with him in Chicago. I should add, (laughs) I've been going through a a binge-watching heist movies uh, phase. (laughs) So my wife and I have been watching loads of heist movies in the evening, which is why I ended up re-watching The Italian Job remake, because it's a heist movie. Mm, And I like heist movies. I like the whole team coming together and each person's got a role to play. And I like the planning bit. And I like when something inevitably goes wrong (laughs) that either they knew about or they didn't know about and they've got to improvise. And so we've been watching loads of these. And and I I miss from the original Italian job the, the team coming together and being a team. 
it's you're right. It's just Charlie. It's Charlie Croker's mm. movie, and I miss other competent people being there to help. He can't do it on his own. He's got this team to help him out, and and they're kind of caricatures, or they're there to to be rubbish to show how great Charlie is. Mm. I miss that kind of the team aspect of it, and I know the ending is iconic, and I hate it. Mm. Every single time I watch this movie, and I've seen this movie an awful lot because, you know, I'm, I'm British and it happens to be on TV once every month or so. And I might not see yeah. the whole thing. I might come in halfway through. And you, if you come into it halfway through, you can't help but just keep watching it. And every time I watch the brilliant double front axle bus, which I love, I love all the shots <laughs> of the wheels turning yes. around those tight bends. That just, I, just does yeah. something. It reminds me of a teeny bit of making Lego with Lego steering where you can go, oh, I can steer two wheels and not just no, four <laughs> wheels. Um, every time I think, I want them to just go around the corner and carry on and get away with it. Mm. You know, which which was the original which I was want the original all ending. of this to have been for something because right now all of this is for nothing. And it bugs me so enormously had this been made in modern times maybe they'd have done an end of credit sting or something but it it renders all the rest of it not pointless but frustrating because you've just watched them you know get away with it and then oh no they're hanging off the edge of a cliff i'm sure i read somewhere a piece from some scientists where they'd worked out a method of how they could actually get out of it and get all the gold <laughs> by, you know, uh, manipulating people's weight and moving things mm. a brick at a time and so on. Um, just the ending frustrates me so much that I just get super cross because I don't want it to have that end. I see. I quite like the ending as a kind of a final twist. But when you find out that it wasn't the original ending, so I think originally they were going to get away with it and get to the south of France or something and then something else happens. And they basically had to come up with a a new ending for some reason, which I can't even remember now. And I quite like the ambiguity of it. I quite like the fact that you get to the end and just when everything's okay and everybody just lets their, their guard down a little bit, then this thing happens and it's like, oh God, what are we going to do? And it ends with, you know, hold on, lads, I've got an idea. He's now from Durham. I don't know why. <laughs> um, is that a Durham accent? I don't know. I, I don't know. We're, this is going to turn into the trip in a minute. We're just going to do dueling Michael Caines. No, I will not do it. I can't do a Michael Caine. I, I can't, I'm not even going to try doing a Michael Caine. But Stay tuned for Marty's other impressions. <laughs> my other impression. Singular. <laughs> yeah, I... There is there's a chunk of movie I love and it's the action stuff and it's the opening and the bit all the way in between. It's possibly because I've seen it so much and because I, it is so dated and of its time that I just kind of go, ugh, do I have to watch this bit? I, I just want to get to the good bit. Um, and so maybe if you haven't seen this very much or you haven't seen it for ages and you want to go back and revisit it, watch the whole thing through as an experience coming to it reasonably fresh and, and see what you think. But mm. like I say, I, I'm I'm possibly putting my own slant on this and watching it through post-Brexit eyes. I struggle with a lot of the movie that is not Minnie's doing awesome things, including driving <laughs> on the roof of the Fiat factory. 
Yes. Which so is cool. so, so cool. And I can see why Fiat offered them loads and loads of money, but you've got to go with the guy that Fiat going, hold on a minute, Do you, have you not read the script? <laughs> <laughs> Do you really want to put your cars against that? It just wouldn't have worked in any way. So my film is the 2003 remake, in inverted commas, uh... of The Italian Job. Now, before I start i want to get one thing out of the way i remember watching this in the cinema and coming out thinking i wish this wasn't called the italian job yeah if if it weren't called the italian job and they didn't have a phrase of dialogue that says we're going to do it like the italian job i think you could get away with almost all of the rest of it including the use of blue white and red minis yeah it could have just been a visual nod and the rest of it could have been a cool heist movie because the thing I love about the, the Italian Job remake is that it is a cool heist movie. I will quickly give you a precy of the plot if you haven't seen this. Um, because you probably haven't, because it's because, not on telly every month. <laughs> no. So it uses some of the same surnames, if not full names, from, from the original. So John Bridger is a professional safecracker played by Donald Sutherland. And he's assembled a team to steal $35 million worth of gold bullion from a safe in Venice. Uh, The team includes Charlie Croker, played by Mark Wahlberg, a computer expert called Lyle, played by Seth Green, Handsome Rob, their wheel man, who's played by Jason Statham. (laughs) There we go. Drinks. Uh, Yeah. Steve, I can't remember his, Steve Frizzelli, their inside man, who's played by a very reluctant Ed Norton. We'll get onto that later. And Left Ear, who's an explosive expert, played by Most Def. Uh, they do their heist in Italy, uh, They, they, which is a brilliant little heist in and of itself. It's very cleverly done. And then they're driving towards Austria with the bullion. And then they're stopped by men loyal to Steve, who turns out to be a turncoat. And they steal the bullion and Steve kills John Bridger. And Handsome Rob drives their van over the bridge into uh, the water below, and they hide out underwater while Steve machine guns them all to death. So he thinks. Cut to a year later, Charlie finds out that Steve has resurfaced with a new name and is laundering the gold to finance a lavish lifestyle in in Los Angeles. And he's bought loads of things that they talked about that they were going to buy with the with with the gold. So he's bought an Aston Martin Vanquish, which is what Handsome Rob wanted, and he's bought a massive stereo, which is what Lyle the hacker guy wanted. And because he's got no imagination, apparently. <laughs> they recruit John Bridger's daughter, Stella, who's played by Charlize Theron, who's a private safe cracker, <laughs> you know, in a typically Hollywood super, super hot woman is a safe cracker. Not to say that the super hot women can't be safe crackers, but it seems unlikely. And they recruit her to get revenge on Steve for her father's death and they bring her in to do a heist to get all the gold bullion from Steve's super safe, super um, reinforced and armoured guarded house. This is obviously not as easy as it seems and they figure out a way of using explosives to blow the safe while they get away with all the gold using three heavily modified Mini Coopers. And the plot goes on in typical heist style. Things go slightly wrong, they have to improvise... The joy for me in this is that it is that classic heist movie of getting the gang together, figuring out who's good at what, how are you going to 
break in. And it's heist movies come in sort of two flavors. You get the one flavor where you get all the planning and you get an idea of what they're going to do. And then something goes wrong and they have to respond to that. And then there's another flavor, which is a little more the Ocean's Eleven, where the film is kind of running a con on you in that you don't know quite what's going on. You're shown something and actually something else is happening. This is the former where you do get to see them planning it out and then circumstances in the film conspire and they have to change their their plans. I love all that stuff. I love the getting the team together. I love the prep stuff. I love seeing them test out the Mini Coopers they're going to get and, and doing stunt driving upstairs and down ramps and all sorts of, of cool stuff. A lot of the cast took driving lessons to do this in the cars, particularly Charlize Theron, who apparently did as much of the driving as they as they let her in both an original Mini Cooper and then in these Mini, the, the BMW Mini Coopers that I guess must have been quite recently out mm. back in 2003. Yeah. And the final chase with the Mini Coopers is original in that it doesn't really pull a great deal from the original movie. They do go through the sewers, Mm. but they put enough of their own stuff in it that that is, again, a little tribute rather than a direct rip-off. They Mm. don't drive on the roof of a Fiat factory. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert. They do their own stuff with it, and and I really enjoy the, the, again, it's, practical stunt work mm. and uh, you know the behind the behind the scenes um clips are out there on the on the web and you can see them saying look we did everything for real everything that you see in the movie we did with these cars there's no cheating it there's no faking it we did it mm. including driving into the subway down a flight of subway steps which the actors did for real but not in mini coopers powered by internal combustion engines because the city wouldn't let them do it so uh. The production team went to BMW and said, uh, have you got any electric minis? And BMW went, there's no such thing as an electric mini. So they had to make their own electric minis. So the oh, shots wow. you see of all the cars in the tunnel, in the subway, dodging pedestrians and all sorts. A, done for real. B, done by the actors, I think for the most part. And C, mm. those minis are electric. Oh, wow. Which is pretty cool. Um While I'm going into behind the scenes stuff, they had a total of 32 minis for the production and they used them all and they trashed them all on a regular basis. They had a 24-hour body shop going so they could (laughs) fix up cars they'd wrecked and use them again. They got the minis, I think all came from BMW. So this was made with the support of the manufacturer. And if I'm right in thinking, the original Italian job, they had approached British Leyland for support and British Leyland said, get lost. (laughs) In one of many short-sighted and stupid decisions that British Leyland would make. Well, true. That's a Uh, whole other very long podcast. (laughs) Yeah, that's more for the motoring podcast, I suspect. One of the other interesting things about this movie is that Ed Norton did not want to do it. He plays the bad guy, and he is so snivellingly, weaselly bad, I can't help but think that a good portion of that is just Ed Norton being cheesed off at being forced to do this. He was acting in an off-Broadway play called Burn This, and then he was forced by the studio to do the Italian job even though he didn't want to do it. Uh, The studio was Paramount Pictures that gave him his start in Primal Fear. And he, I think, must have been under contract to them and basically had to do this movie because it was written in his contract. And I think he was hoping for some way of getting out of it and couldn't. And so 
whenever I watch this, I always feel like his his thoroughly hissable villain is largely <laughs> because Ed Norton is is he chews the scenery a little bit and he's he's generally acting like a pissed off dick because I suspect there's an awful <laughs> lot of pissed off dick Ed Norton in there. Can we also talk about Ed yes. Norton's moustache? It's a terrible moustache. This is a it's it's a shifty moustache. It, it's a proper like twiddling the waxed ends and going <laughs> yes it is it's a cartoon villain's moustache and he's like i say he's eminently hissable it's it's classic in that sense um as the lead mark Wahlberg is let's let's be fair he's no michael kane in terms of the sort of the charm and the cool but he makes this work he plays this as a very calm character you think? Um, yeah, there's no there's no screaming, shouting bits. He's he's very under control and he's got his plan and he's gonna he's gonna do it. And his his big thing is there's gonna be no guns. They don't use guns uh. at all at any point, and he gets really annoyed that that Steve does use guns. I I I kind of get that. For me, the the joy in this movie is the team themselves because they mm. are given backstories and characters, and it's those things that make this most entertaining. By and large, you've got Seth Green riffing on the kind of um, early two thousands nerd. He insists on being referred to as the Napster for reasons I won't bore you <laughs> with now. It's a little cheesy, but he makes it work. It's a joy watching a pre Fast and Furious pre action hero. I think possibly even pre-transporter Jason Statham. I think you might be right. Playing handsome Rob, who is an awesome character. He's their driver and he has, I think, a bunch of the best lines, some of the best scenes. My mm. probably favourite scene in the whole movie is, is a bit where he has to go and pick up a, a, a an attractive cable repair technician this only <laughs> happens in in hollywood and the whole scene is is seen through the eyes of lyle the computer hacker who's watching him through the binoculars in another car and who just narrates the thing himself <laughs> to say uh, you know what what are you saying to her hi my name's rob <laughs> the, the whole thing is just wonderful he's giving he's giving the girl lines and um it really makes me laugh. He's fantastic. Most deaf is an oddball choice, but he works too. He gives it just a weird left field kind of character charm, and it it works. They the 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 crew work together in the same way that the 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 team in Ocean's Eleven all kind of bounce off one another and, and work really well as an ensemble, mm. and it's charming in that way, um, and. The thing you have to do with this movie is just forget that it's called The Italian Job. Give it another name. I don't know what you'd call it. Um, but just enjoy a well-made Hollywood fun heist mm. movie with a great car chase at the end and a thoroughly hissable villain and a happy <laughs> ending. They don't get stuck with a coach hanging off the end of a cliff. They do get away with it in a thoroughly enjoyable way because there is a hissable villain in this, whereas there wasn't in the first movie. There wasn't a villain per se. They're stealing from a whole country. Just on Jason Statham, I've been I've been doing some live googling. This is post Transporter, at least on release date. So it was probably in production around the time Transporter was. However, according to IMDb, his first credit as an actor is Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Yep, that's true. He was a find by Guy Ritchie and Matthew Vaughan, I think. He was. However, he has three earlier credits on IMDb. Without looking, can you guess what any of them are? 
I know he was an Olympic diver, so I don't know if it's some kind of 1992 Olympics thing. No. There was a shaman music video and an erasure video in 1993 and 94, respectively, where he is categorised on IMDb as a dancer. Oh, because he was a model as well, because, of course, you know, if you're a diver, you're probably fairly fit. And, mm. yeah, I can totally see that being the thing. But you know, he wasn't the stath. He wasn't the stath. Love. When, when you sound that, you sound a bit like the dog that says sausages. <laughs> sausages. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very topical niche reference. Um, I'm fairly certain in this movie he also drives a BMW 8 series, which is the awesome one with the V12 engine and the pop-up headlamps which makes it even more cool. He it drives is. an Aston Martin. Uh, I think he ends up with a DB9, not the Vanquish, but, you know, still cool as hell. And he's just Statham in it, really. He's playing a variant on other mm. Statham characters, but they're intensely charming to watch. And I always enjoy watching this movie because it's fun and it's escapist and I love the car chase. Mm. And every time I watch it, it passes that test of, oh, I really love those r 30 Oh, I'm sorry, R53 BMW Minis, the ones with the supercharger. <laughs> Watching me think, I wonder how much one of those is going for. And I can remember uh, back around this kind of time, someone I knew had one of these, the, the Mini Cooper S, the supercharged one, and I loved driving it. It was amazing. And I think they're probably pretty dirt cheap now. So, Oh, God, they uh, really they're are. They're also probably quite old and have many things wrong with them, but this makes me, this yes, thing they do. makes me want a, a white one with those lovely multi-spoke alloys <laughs> that are going to be a pain in the ass to clean but look cool as hell. And, of course, it has to have the supercharger. So I welcome your opinion. You're wrong, and here's why. The heists themselves are really good and they are really clever. And I think particularly the... The, the the one early in the film foreshadows the one that's later in the film, and the 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 later one I think is is brilliant in the way that it's choreographed and the way that so the way they cover it up and the way that they hide it from people is really really good. I think that Mark Wahlberg, rather than being the the sort of the calm centre, he's a bit nothingy for me. He's like the cherry tomatoes on the salad bar where you kind of go eh, mm, no. Everyone around him is interesting. You're absolutely right. Everyone has their own personality, has their own character, but he just has nothing. For me, there's no spark from him as a performer that gives him any sort of investment, whereas Charlize Theron, her character has a lot more emotional investment. She has a lot more range in what she does. You're right about her driving, and I wonder if there's something between this and hyperdrive that might have been a bit of a... Uh, a, a link or a festering thing there for for some time, um, but yeah, I, I, I struggled so much with Mark Wahlberg to find almost a reason for him to be there because he doesn't get angry, he doesn't get upset, he just kind of swaggers around a bit and he's just like, yeah, it'll all be fine. And then you've got people that are sort of going off and doing the problem solving and. You know, Charlize Theron's character is the one who has the most reason to do this. It's not just a, um, oh, the, they got our guy, so we're going to get yeah, them. Yeah, she's probably, in acting terms, the best thing in the movie. I can see where you're coming Absolutely. from. Absolutely, you, you could take Mark Wahlberg out of this and place in another charismatic leading actor and possibly have an even more engaging cast. But I didn't hate him. I, I quite enjoyed watching it and... and Perhaps that's just my personal movie taste versus yours. 
it reminded me a bit reminded me a bit of what was the boxing film that he did with Christian Bale? Probably it's called The Boxer or something. Where Christian Bale was kind of the slightly gregarious character, and I think he's the one that got the best supporting actor nom or whatever it was, because he was doing acting, whereas Mark Wahlberg was kind of sitting there just being him. And it kind of felt like that a bit with this, that you've got all these people, and particularly Seth Green and Mostef. Um, of course, actually, Mostef is... I don't know if it was the case in 2003, but I thought his hearing aid was a little bit too pronounced. And I say this as somebody with some experience. Anyway. <laughs> True. I I do enjoy the moment where I think somebody else asks him something and he says, what? I said this. Damn it. I'm deaf. <laughs> oh, Moss Deaf. Oh, I don't know. I've only just got that pun. Um <laughs> Oh dear. But yeah, so, but but they they all have these sorts of these ranges and these fears and these drives and you feel that they've been hurt, you feel that they've been wronged, you feel that they want revenge. Yeah, they're set up far better in the script, I think, than the the, the lead character who just kind of comes you're supposed to get everything about him from the very first scene with Charlie and um John Bridger. Yeah. They're basically they're not showing you they're telling you which is the thing you're not supposed mm. to do i get that and i can totally mm. see it i i kind of just gloss over that because the rest of it's so cool uh, and including the <laughs> wireframe graphics of the minis going around the house um from 2003 yes. which are pretty pretty fun uh, I, th- I think the other thing for me was that the cinematography is brilliant i think w- wally fist has done a great job and particularly the transitions where it's kind of going between scenes or showing the passage of time, beautifully done. The thing that kind of got my goat at the beginning was the time scale and the way that, they, well, not the time scale, the way that they've structured the story. So you've got the heist at the start, you've got the thing that happens, then you've got the, the build up to the next job which is the kind of the, the the finale of the whole thing which i get i kind of get the structure of why you would do it that way but the timing of it felt off it felt that it, it just wasn't quite sitting right with me to the point that you were, i was almost watching it going um oh so we're getting to this point okay so we're jumping straight oh right okay I felt like I was trying to catch up with the story and I was trying to fill in too many blanks. And it was, it just didn't hang together right at the start to the point that when you then start getting to the planning and the getting the team together and stuff for the next job, that sort of almost felt like a different film. It didn't really hang together well for me. And I I have no idea what you're talking about. Are you. I understand. I understand the structure. But the way that it went into it and the way that it sort of handled that first bit up to Ed Norton unloading machine gun into a river, it, the time of it just felt wrong and it just what? felt I, I, like it was trying no. to be too clever. What movie did you watch? <sighs> In hindsight, you, you watch it and you kind of go, okay, so that bit was setting up this bit here and that bit was doing that bit. Okay. But I wasn't in the story at that point. And I think it took me quite a bit of the middle of the film to kind of almost get over that and start enjoying the um, the thing more. And I, I think overall, you're right. If it hadn't been called The Italian Job, if it had been called, you know... Yeah, Heist in LA. I don't know what you could have called it, especially with the, with the minis. I don't I, know. I know it would 
probably be impossible for it to be using three Mini Coopers as getaway vehicles without it being the Italian job in some way. But exactly. I've always thought, I wonder if this would be viewed more forgivingly by a, a certain section of people who hate it just because they love Brexit the movie, as I will now be referring <laughs> to the original Italian job. Speaking of which... The bit where they mentioned the Italian job, there was one film that that completely reminded me of. And it kind of showed me how clever that film was and how much of a clangor it was in this film. For those of you particularly who work in tech, you will remember the film Office Space. And there is a scene in that where they come up with a plan to steal the fractions of a cent from each transaction of their company and pay it into an account. And one of the characters turns to the other and goes, this sounds familiar. The one turns back and goes, yeah, it was the plot of Superman 3. <laughs> oh yeah, that was it. And then they just carry on referencing that that was the thing. I don't think this movie works if it exists in a universe where the Italian job, the original movie, works. I think that's that would be a step meta too far, especially for 2003. Yeah. But I, I take the point. The thing I found interesting about this, that they always, because it was a success, it was reviewed... I'd say middlingly. I think people who are willing to look past the title and actually watch it on its mm. merits probably had a pretty good time and it made money. It was a success. Mm. And because I think possibly because everyone enjoyed the ensemble and the heist in the way that I did, there were always rumours rumbling on about a sequel. And I think I covered this in the very first podcast episode we did where we talked about... No, maybe it wasn't the very first one we did. It's the one we talked about our favourite Fast and Furious movies and I did Fast Five. Mm. And I've always felt that Fast Five could easily have been, the heisty bit of it could easily have been done with a bunch more Mini Coopers and the gang from the Italian job. <laughs> because the sequel's title that was rumbling around forever was called The Brazilian Job. And where is it that Fast Five <laughs> takes place? Brazil. So I've always felt that there must have been a script kicking around that never quite got into a shape that they were happy with. And perhaps people then went maybe we could get The Rock in this and those Fast and Furious guys and we could try that with a heist in the middle and totally pivot that franchise from being um, sort of street racing and onto the now heisty madness that we all know and love. The Brazilian job. Yes. I'm not sure if it would have ever made it to production with that title, but I know that there were persistent rumours. And I think for a while, for many years, in fact, it was on the IMDb as in production or in development. Uh, It never made it to development and it it won't now because it's it's so far gone. And I think all the the actors have have since moved on to different things and, and getting them all in the same place at the same time would be next to impossible. But I would go. Would that involve a number of Mini Coopers going down a landing strip, <laughs> chasing a plane, dragging a safe? Quite possibly. Good use of the word landing strip there. Very clever. <laughs> anyway. Shall we move on? <laughs> yeah, so this has kind of turned into an, uh, like the second of our versus things where we go backwards and forwards, except this is me versus you on, on your favourite Italian job and the opposite way around. I don't think I'm ever going to change my opinion of the original Italian job. I love the chase scenes. Mm. I love the idea of driving minis onto a bus. Those are amongst my favourite scenes in auto movie history. But I really don't enjoy the rest of the movie. And it sounds like you had not maybe the similar experience, but you just didn't get a good chunk of the remake. And Mm. the fact that it's a remake of a movie that is extremely beloved is problematic in and of itself. However... If you haven't seen either one of them recently or at all, then watch both of them and tell us what you think. Mm. Give us a tweet at automoviepod or comments at automoviepodcast.com. 
Shall we move on to our YouTube picks of the week? We should, because we've gone on for a <laughs> long have. time. Even though I said we should do a tight 45, we've totally failed at that once again. So YouTube <laughs> picks. What's your pick for this? That's a T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, what's, what's your pick for this episode? So for me, I've, I've been dipping into the F1 channel because there isn't any F1. What they've been doing is a couple of things. So they've been showing whole races as live and people have been tweeting along with them. That's great. They've been doing uh, some of the e-racing stuff. Eh, not so good. But they've also been doing a lot of archive stuff. And what I found was a video where they followed the McLaren team in the 2019 Monaco Grand Prix during qualifying. And what you hear is not just the commentary of the track, but also what's going on the radio within the team. What should we do? Should we take these tyres? Oh, well, you know, we'll take a set now and we'll do this later. And it's it's interesting to kind of actually get a sort of play-by-play, very, very specifically, of a team going through a process, even to the point where they're kind of referencing... There's stuff in there that's obviously their own spiel and the stuff that they've discussed in the, in the, the, the meetings beforehand. But there's still people having to make decisions and calling out the options and all this sort of thing. Go and check it out. Go and check out the F1 channel because they're just doing a lot of this stuff now. They're doing, a, you know, they've got the uh, Beyond the Grid podcast, which also goes up on YouTube just in audio form. They've got their sort of top five, they've got top some ten archive races lists. Um, so archive I, races. I watched the 1986 Australian Grand Prix, the the one where Nigel Mansell has a blowout while he's in contention for his first world championship. And they've got the whole race there. I think they, they trailed it on April mm. the 1st, so everyone thought that they were going to take the mickey and play something like USA 20, 2005 or something horrible. <laughs> no, it's the full race, and it's a fascinating watch. And I think I texted you while I was watching mm. it with with my sort of thoughts on it. It's it's a really interesting watch to see how F1 racing in what I think many people think is a golden era took place and spoiler alert mm. it's just as dull in some places as current racing <laughs> uh, and there's even bigger gaps between the haves and the have-nots in the team team way but yeah they've got full mm. races of that I think they've got the full um Bahrain 2014 which is another that's a pretty good race actually that was a favorite of mine where you got to see just how much pace Mercedes had in hand over the rest of the field on a mm. number of occasions but right at the end there is a safety car because Pastor Maldonado crashed into someone else because that's what Pastor Maldonado did <laughs> in F1 days and <laughs> there's a long safety car while they clear away the debris and then it's all oh yeah it's it's everyone goes for it because they've not got any fuel worries mm. and there's only 15 laps to the end and the two mercs drop the rest of the field like they are third period french in four laps <laughs> they are i guess 10 or 11 seconds ahead like the full length of the pit straight ahead and this is the race mm. where rosberg and hamilton battled for the win and hamilton continually ran rosberg off the road in some very robust borderline or what i would now consider unsportsmanlike behaviour, but that is mm. the way the Hamilton-Rosberg um, needle was started, I think. It's a really interesting race, worth watching. Mm. My pick for this is not F1 at all, it's sports cars, uh, specifically Porsche. They dropped, seemingly out of nowhere, a fantastic documentary called Endurance on their channel. I think it's just a Porsche channel on YouTube. And it's a mm. full-length documentary which 
covers them racing at two back-to-back endurance races in 2019. The 2019 Le Mans, and then the week after was the 2019 Nürburgring 24 Hours. And they are following their GT team, racing 911s at Le Sarth, and then packing it all up and going to the Nürburgring and racing at the Nürburgring. And it is a full-on insider view into what it's like to race for Porsche at two of the greatest endurance races known to man. It's brilliant watching. You get sights of the engineers. You get mm. a really good insight into the drivers and their what they think of their teammates, how they how they deal with setup. There's a fascinating conversation where they're talking about the setup for the car for the Nürburgring 24, and they seem completely unhappy about it for the whole time. It takes all of the time they have to get the car set up to, to their liking. Um, there's a fascinating insight into their, probably I'm going to say superstar driver in Kevin Estre, who yep, yep. it's clear is the team's secret weapon. And anyone who watched the Nürburgring 24 hours in 2019 will know that he's the guy that pulled off that overtaking manoeuvre down the Dottinger Hoa, two wheels on the grass going past the Mercedes. And he is quite clearly viewed as ever so slightly crazy by the rest of his team. And <laughs> they've got interviews with a, a lady who I presume is his wife, or I don't know if it's his wife or girlfriend, but she, she mm. can't stand to watch him when he's racing because she gets so wound up. And it's easy to see why, because he is maximum attack all of the time. He doesn't have, they, I think they say in the, the documentary, he doesn't have anything other than on, it's like off or maximum attack. There's no in the middle, there's no coasting, <laughs> there's no taking it easy. He is just maximum attack all the time. It's a brilliant documentary. It's probably no spoiler to say, if you've seen the race results, that Porsche don't do particularly well in either one, um, specifically not the N24, because I think they finished second on the road and then had that taken away from them as well for some kind of technical infringement, mm. which is a big load of crap. Uh, <laughs> such is racing. But as a documentary about endurance racing, I think it's right up there with the very best and the very best is truth in 24 yep uh which we will cover on a future podcast this not quite as good probably doesn't tell enough of a broad story for it to be held right up there but it is very very good for a free documentary that's just dropped on youtube from porsche Mm. you can't get better than this really it's fantastic viewing so i highly urge you to go and watch that as well as all the other things we've said (laughs) and i would say as well as much as it's about the portion, as much as it's about the drivers, the comparison between the two events is so brilliantly stark. The two events are incredibly different and they really have a very, very different feel in the documentary. So it really feels like a shift from the kind of the super corporate, super professional, super slick Le Mans to the... Slightly more DIY ethos, slightly more DIY and the fact that it helps that they shift from the corporate colours on the car to the Grello Manti 911 that's mm. not sort of white and black and red or white and black and, and bronze as they, as they had in Le Mans. It, it's a total change yes. and it feels far more independent and homebrew, even though, you know, Manti have a Porsche shareholding now or something like that. Is that a, Are they completely owned by Porsche? No, they are. I think they're 40% owned by... Porsche, and, the remaining is- and they are 60%, 60% is Raider Motorsport. But if you go to their factory now, you will find a an official Porsche, Porsche Centre, oh, as cool. well as the Manti Racing factory. And that's it for this episode. 
If you think we got it right, we got it wrong, share your thoughts and opinions with us on Twitter at AutoMoviePod or email us at comments at AutoMoviePodcast.com. Don't forget, if you like it, tell people, share. It makes all the difference to us and it helps us reach more people and grow our podcast, which we will be hugely appreciative of. And I'm going to go and steal some gold from the back of a coach. And I'm going to go and blow the bloody doors off. (laughs) Until next time, everybody. 